0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N. McClanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to Academy.com. Always free to enroll. You get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, purchase one of the classes there or 20 of the classes there, and you help keep this podcast free of charge. You can also support the show by clicking on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going, get my autograph on any of my books by buying a book plate there, and, of course, purchasing a book Also, help support the show. I've got many of those. Just go to Barnes & Noble, uh, Books a Million, uh, wherever books are sold, right? I mean, you get your Amazon, of course. You get your books there, and you can purchase my book. Just search for my name. All my books come up. My most recent are Southern Scribblings and the Jeffersonian Tradition. You can also support the show by clicking on the Shop tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, T-R-U-E LearnTrueHistory.com. is my affiliate link for Tom Wisdom the Classroom. A lot of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, free of charge and painless to share the podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And we grow the audience that way. Now, I want to talk about a really interesting subject, to me anyways, and I... It's one that, of course, in our modern woke society is hard to address. Now, um, I will say this. The 1619 Project does it. It's one of the things that people don't necessarily dispute about the 1619 Project, but it's something that I think that the Straussians don't like to hear about. And I think it's the, the problem with it is that it, it makes the, the treasury... Of counterfeit virtue people, the righteous cause-myth people, uncomfortable. It makes them really uncomfortable because, you see, one of the things the 1619 Project does is it points out that, look, uh, America has always had this issue of race and slavery. I mean, this is something that's always talked about. And They put it first and foremost that it's the most important issue. This is where I would disagree with them. They would say America, of course, is systemically racist, where I would disagree with them there. But to say that there's been one section that's responsible for race and slavery while the other one has been completely um, devoid of that issue is problematic to say the least. That's an academic term, problematic. i got to use that when we're talking about academics. It's actually um, a distortion of American history. And so, look, I mean, that's true, right? I mean, this issue has been there. It hasn't been the most important issue, but it's been there. And I want to point out a couple of books and talk about this in relation to the North. Because I think that's the most interesting part of all of this. You see, we've spent so much time talking about the South and the peculiar institution, uh, as it was called. I mean, it was called peculiar because it was not... Odd, but because it was, by the point that that phrase was used, essentially a Southern institution. It was peculiar to the South and, in many ways, peculiar to the institution of slavery to the rest of the world. Because to men like John C. Calhoun and other pro-slavery ideologues in America, as Calhoun wasn't an ideologue in this way, he was a practical man when it came to this. This is what he said in the positive good speech. He didn't defend slavery in the abstract. He actually said that. I'm not defending it in the abstract. I'm defending it as it actually exists in in its peculiar form here in the southern United States. But to pro-slavery ideologues around the United States, north and south, Uh, the the institution of slavery in America was unique compared to the way it was used in other parts of the world and throughout history. In fact, their argument, it was more humane in the United States than it had been anywhere else. And so, of course, that argument has been studied over and over again, comparative histories. And, of course, in the U.S., you have the two most important studies on it, in my opinion, which are Eugene Genovese's Roll Jordan Roll, the World the Slaves Made, which is a fantastic book, and then also Fogel and Engerman's Time on the Cross, which is also a fantastic book. They're both very good. And they look at the conditions, they use some comparative analysis, they do some things, and generally their conclusion is, well, you know, the South, Southerners had a point on some things. right? I mean, this is, this is where you know, this becomes very contentious. Not, they're not defending slavery at all, and, and nobody is. But people look at it like that and say, well, why are you defending slavery? And in fact, any time you start talking about this, you're, oh, you're just defending slavery. Nobody's defending slavery. Nobody's defending an institution where people don't have liberty, uh, where they don't have the liberty to leave something if there's abuse or if there's any potential for abuse. We don't want that, right? Nobody in modern society wants that. But what I find fascinating about this, of course, is the North's role in all of this. What was the North's role in slavery? Uh, How did the North profit from slavery? Should there be this treasury of virtue? Should there be a righteous cause myth? We know it shouldn't be there. We know that if you say that the South is fighting for slavery, the North has to be fighting against slavery, and we know that's not the case, particularly not early in the war. Now, if you listen to James Oakes. He would say they are, but I think his argument is, is weak, because we know that the average northerner didn't go to war to free any slaves. In fact, when that was made a war aim, there was mass desertions in the in the Union Army. So, we know this was the case, right? So, we know that slavery, freeing the slaves, was not an objective of the North. We know even Lincoln was talking about allowing the, sla- the South to essentially vote down the 13th Amendment, or at least giving them a lot more wiggle room in ending the institution. They could have Carried it forward into the late 19th century, maybe the early 20th century. There would have been uh, this extension of slavery had uh, the South come back in the Union earlier on. We know that Lincoln was in favor of the 13th, the original 13th Amendment, which would have kept slavery permanent in the states where it already existed. That the general government could not have interfered with it. Now, again, what's interesting about that argument is that it recognizes. A couple of things. Number one, the issue was not about slavery in the southern states. It was about the extension of slavery, and that's all. that was always the issue. But there's an underlying reason why that was always the issue, because behind that, behind the extension of slavery, of course, was the extension of southern agriculture, which then, by default, created a power structure for the south in terms of political economy. The opposition to tariffs, banking, and federally funded internal improvements. That's the key, Right. And this is what the populist revolt was all about. The Western farmers finally figured out, oops, we cut the wrong deal, right? We, we got in bed with these bankers and these industrialists who aren't in favor of our interests. And so we're going to switch sides and go back with the South again. And so you created this agrarian alliance there. But it was never about slavery in the southern states. It's also interesting that Calhoun notes in that 1837 positive good speech, he says, look, if the general government can pass a protective tariff... If the general government can pass a force bill, of course it can abolish slavery. This is people something that people don't pick up on that speech. Calhoun is saying there's no question. If the general government can do these unconstitutional things, it can abolish slavery, and it should. If it's so bad, he says, why don't we abolish it right now? But nobody's wanting to do that. So, you see, the, third, the original th- the Corwin Amendment recognized that the Congress had, in some ways, I mean, this is the argument against it, well, we all agree Congress can abolish slavery in the states, but if you do this, then you're saying they could abolish slavery in the states. So this is a, irre- The amendment's irrelevant, right? It's all about the Western Territories. Why it was ultimately, of course, passed, but then uh, not ratified. So I want to talk about a couple of interesting books, though, when it gets into the northern position and the northern role in slavery. And one, I'm, I'm, I'm going to mention three. I'm going to talk about in more detail one. The first is Larry Ties' Pro-Slavery. It's a really interesting book. Um, Larry Ties is not an academic historian. And in fact, none of these books I'm going to talk about today are written by academic historians. Larry Ties was more of a popular historian. And Larry Ties went out and he found, he just started looking at pro-slavery writings. And the very first mention uh, of pro-slavery ideology, quote-unquote, in America was by a man named John Saffin, and he was doing this around 1701 in Massachusetts. In fact, what's interesting is that Ties pins pro-slavery ideology on the North. He says, look, pro-slavery ideology is born in the North, and it's born in Northern theological instruction. It's born from Northern Puritan Churches, essentially, and you look at people like George Whitfield, who was pro-slavery originally. He wasn't, then he was. This is what's always funny to me when you have the the righteous cause myth people that um, they they miss. Them. I mean, they look at how and and uh, you know, others uh, who, of course, were uh, certainly using religious zeal, you know, Beecher religious zeal to. defend to uh, defend abolition. But what they don't realize is that that same religious zeal was used to defend slavery, right? So, uh, I mean, it it came out of the North. So Ties's book pro-slavery is very, very good. In fact, if you read that book, what you're going to walk away thinking is that look, Calhoun's position on slavery was not unique at all. In fact, it was the most unoriginal part of his entire philosophy. It shouldn't even be mentioned to be frank. I mean, it, It shouldn't, because Calhoun was interested in much more things, and he was so much more important for a variety of other reasons. So that's a good one. Also, Anne Farrow's book, Complicity. Now, that book and the one I'm going to talk about today are a mess when it comes to reading. The Pharaoh book is hard to get through. As one reviewer pointed out, it's it's choppy. It could have I mean, it's not a very good book for reading in terms of having a cohesive story throughout. It's just kind of these choppy stories. And it's like, you I mean, hodgepodge of stuff. But what it does more than anything else is point the fingers back at the North and saying, well, look, if if we're going to be critical of the South for all these things, what about the North's role in this? What about Ivy League schools? What about the slave trade? What about all the things the North was doing? What about the fact that you had Puritans who may not have had slaves In the northern states, or New Englanders, may not have slaves in the northern states, but they owned large plantations in the Caribbean. Or they were part of organizations, companies, essentially, corporate partners that owned plantations in the south. You see, that's the absentee part of this, something that people don't realize. In the area where I live, in the county that I used to live in, the same state, but in the county, I moved to a different county, in the county, the largest, from what I understand, the largest slave-holding area in the county or slaveholding plantation in the county was actually owned by a New York conglomerate. So it wasn't a local farmer that owned the largest slaveholding plantation in that county. It was an absentee New York conglomerate, which is interesting, right? I think that's an interesting part of American history, that you have all these complex things going on to make this a, a much more... A much deeper, I should say, issue than just one section against a good section against a bad section. And this is essentially what you're getting out of the Strausians. If you look at someone like Michael Anton, who writes well, we, i'm not I'm not blaming Southerners, but we got to take out Calhoun. We got to take out these Southerners who are all our problems If it wasn't for these people, conservative would be the the ideology in America. Everyone would be conservative. After all, Harry Jaffa said equality is conservative. But the, other, the book I want to focus on has some other interesting parts to it. and It was published in 2013. It's entitled The Manor, and I'm going to hold it up here. The Manor. And it's by a woman named Matt Griswold. Now, just like the Complicity book, it is a mess to read. It's not very easy to read. It's not well written. She is someone who is a... Um, she writes a lot about gardens. I, I found that fascinating. She writes, she writes histories of gardens. And she was drawn to this particular subject because of the beauty of the landscape in the area. Now, what this story is about is a home on Shelter Island, New York, um, or Long Island, you know, Shelter Island, Long Island. It's a plantation there that was actually founded by Quakers. Now, that's the interesting part to me. You see, because this shows you how the institution of slavery in America was not necessarily, it didn't influence culture, it was just there. Uh, I talk about this with my students. I was just doing this the other day when we were were talking about the Middle Ages, and we were going through the Doomsday Book, right? So we were looking at the Doomsday Book in class, and we pulled up different towns, and we were looking at different parts of England. Of course, that was published in 1085, 1086, uh, commissioned by William the Conqueror. And um, we're looking at that, and of course, it lists slave areas, right? So you have slaves listed. And this is essentially what David Hackett Fisher said in his Albion Seat. He said, look, slavery didn't make the South. That culture, the, the culture, the Cavalier Society, the Celtic Society, but all of that, it, it, slavery didn't make those things. Slavery didn't make the South at all. Those particular cultures worked with slavery. So did the Puritans, by the way. There's a large number of slaves in Massachusetts, and even the Quakers. I find this fascinating because no group in America, even a group whose religion was hostile to slavery, Quakerism was hostile to slavery. Even a group of people that had a hostility to slavery based on religion still owned slaves. And they owned Indian slaves, they owned African slaves. So I find that part of it fascinating. One thing I found really fascinating was one of the chapters in this book entitled Summer Colony. Now she gets into some of the issues of slaves and how slaves continued to live on on this particular plantation home until the 1820s when slavery was abolished in New York. But even after that, there were still... Uh, they were still wrestling with tenantship and all these other things. And so, what role, did, what rights did black Americans have on this particular area? What didn't they have? And she talks in this particular chapter about a man named Eben Horsford, Eben Horsford, who was a professor, a, a chemistry professor at Harvard. Now, she gets into. The fact that at Harvard, of course, Horsford had all kinds of contact with the major intellectuals of New England. And what she found was that a lot of these people were pro-slavery. And they they were they believed in racial inferiority. They believed in scientific racism, essentially. This is, this is something that was dominant in the 1850s. And she talks about how Horsford, this is a really interesting story in the book, and I wanted to bring this out today. It was Horsford's relationship with the Tylers, John Tyler, right? Horsford actually went to the Tylers' plantation. He traveled down to Virginia at one point, and he wrote some things about the plantation, And what I find fascinating about these northern travels into the south, now she pins all this on the fact that Horsford was already pro-slavery. He was already into scientific racism. He wasn't going to see things differently. But when you look at people like Nehemiah Adams, who wrote a book on his travels in the south, he wanted to prove the abolitionists correct, and Nehemiah Adams travels to the South. He's from New England, travels to the South, and writes a book that's exact opposite of what he wanted, what he went in thinking. And you find this as people would go to the South, and they would come back. They would write descriptions of slavery in the South that wasn't necessarily comporting with what was written, say, in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Even if you read a book like 12 Years a Slave, which has the horrors in it at times, but it also has this very benign description of slavery in it. I mean, it's strange, right? So it's strange just because where we get our history is Twitter, and where we get our history is Roots and Django Unchained and these things, and maybe the institution, maybe the relationships are more complex and human than what we than what we get in our pop culture. It's not saying the institution was good, It's not saying it's beneficial. It's not saying any of that. It's just saying maybe there's a little different story to all of this than what you get out of these things. Now, she says, A change of public opinion came about over the course of several years. Cornelius Conway Felton, a professor of Greek at Harvard and later later the university's president, the Horsfords gave his resounding name to the youngest daughter, Cornelia Conway Felton Horsford, was pro-slavery and opposed abolition in the 1850s. So Cornelius Felton, who who Eben Horsford was uh, was very good friends with. I mean, he named they named their daughter after this guy, was pro-slavery. He was pro-slavery. So when you get to the 1850s and you have all the events that lead to the 1850s and then the war, Eben Horsford she says, threw himself into the Union cause with the characteristic characteristic zeal and expertise. He helped plan the defense of Boston Harbor, devised barnacle protection for ironclad submarines, and formulated and manufactured rations for the Union Army, which ordered many thousands of his rather fancifully named foot-square slabs of uh, desiccated bread and roasted whole beef. Alas... Amos B. Eaton, Commissary General of Substance for the United States Army, politely rejected them for military use, though without stating why they failed the field test. But then she says, despite the effort that Eben put into beating the South, he was uncertain what to think of slavery or indeed of black people. Like so many other New Englanders, he joined the war effort primarily to save the Union, not to free the slaves. I mean, so she's, this would be lost cause Nonsense, right? I mean, that's not true. No, but how can you say that? In 1852, he had visited his wife's cousin, Julia Gardner Tyler, and her husband, the former president, John Tyler, at Sherwood Forest, their 1,500-acre Virginia plantation on the James River, not far from Jamestown, where Nathaniel had loaded his Dutch ship with tobacco in the 1640s. Nathaniel was the original founder of this particular house. Right, so here are the Quakers trading tobacco with the Virginians. Of course, they're getting involved in the slave and slavery on, and uh, on Long Island there, and this is all fascinating stuff. All the interweaving of these things, and they have this book has wonderful pictures of the home, and uh, she's she's has access to documents nobody had ever seen before about the family. She's writing a family history essentially of this house. It's fascinating. That's why I say get it. It's choppy. It's hard to read at times. And it's dry. There's some parts of it like, ah, I mean, there's just too much detail here. It's just a little too dry. But you find little nuggets like this. In a letter to his mother, Eben described being rowed up the river in a barge by six liveried slaves in blue and white checkered shirts with straw hats painted to match. Now think about what they're saying there. These are liveried slaves, which... If you look at, uh, if you watch the show on PBS, Downton Abbey, you watch that show, you have the footmen wearing their liveries. You have this this aristocracy, the uniforms, right? So here you have John Tyler having his slaves wear liveries, right? So these were the house servants. They had uniforms, just like you would in aristocratic Great Britain at this point, right? This is the period of time you have Victorian England and those in manored estates had servants that wore liveries. It was the same. Now, these people are slaves in America. They're not slaves in Great Britain. But if you go back and look at any study, any working conditions of anything in England in, in, uh, in, in that period of time, Victorian England, it's awful. I mean, nobody would want to live and labor in any capacity in the 19th century. It's horrible, whether you're free or slave. It's horrible. It's horrible. Eben thrilled to the romance of slave territory. That's a quote. A fecund jungle, dark with grapevines, ivy and holly, vast flotillas of ducks and geese, one flock not less than a thousand, and a magnificent primitive oak forest. He remarked on quantities of slaves' houses and found the fences and fields in much better shape than I had pictured to myself. He eventually arrived at his host's imposing 300 foot long house where a handsome row of outbuildings extended on either side of some, some distance, including corn cribs, dove coats, milk house, and etc., and an arrangement not so very different from that of Sylvester Manor, though on a grander scale. The Tyler's own 60 slaves, 13 of them house servants. So he's talking about, you know, or she says that Sylvester Manor, which is his home on Long Island, It's very similar to this, right? Eben was familiar with the dire image of slavery painted by abolitionist literature in general, and in particular by Harriet Beecher Stowe, whose Uncle Tom's Cabin was just then finishing its debut as a popular newspaper serial. But struck by the order and prosperity that he saw at Sherwood Forest, he determined to find out, quote, all I can about the system that I may form an intelligent judgment, end quote. He visited, quote, some Negro cabins, end quote, and to be thorough about his investigations of Black Baptist Church. Taking the moral ambi- ambiguities of the peculiar institution in stride, he seemed unable to condemn outright what he saw, instead describing, quote, the system in its best form as a minority that never terminates, end quote. He observed that, quote, the slaves are treated like children, punished when they deserve it, rewarded when they could when they should be, all of them permitted to earn extra pay, cared for when sick, and I should think uniformly cheerful and happy, and by no means hard worked, end quote. Now, This is one of the guys that lived at Sylvester Manor on this book pictured here. He's from New York. He's traveling to the South, and this shows the complexity of of the entire institution. Here is a a man that teaches at Harvard, right? He teaches at Harvard. One of his good friends who he named his daughter after is ardently pro-slavery, ardently scientific racist. That's the thing that people miss in all of this stuff. That's why books like The Manner* are important. Why books like Complicity are important. Why books like as Pro-Slavery are important. Because it gives you a broader picture of what's going on here in America and provides context. It takes away this black versus white version of American history, this thing where you have the righteous cause against the lost cause. What you find is that there isn't really either there that what Southerners were doing was not odd compared to what was going on in other parts of the world. Y- you have this much larger picture of what's happening. Now, you could say this lends credence to the 1619. I started this podcast by saying that, look, what they're saying in the 1619 Project, that this was an issue, North and South, is true. You you don't have a situation where you have one section that's guilty and one section is not, but this is how it's often portrayed, in the South is always the bad guy and all of that, and it... It, it wasn't just the bad guy, if you want to have good guys and bad guys here. That's why I find books like this interesting. Also, the fact that this was founded by Quakers, who were slaveholders, and then you move forward in time and what this meant for this particular plantation. Again, uh, the book is choppy, it's hard to get through, but I find it fascinating for that, for these reasons. And I, I like reading these stories that show this complexity of American history, and... Um, when you read the documents, why would why would he have why would he lie? This he's writing to his mother. It's not for publication. He's not writing it for a newspaper. He's writing a private letter. Why would he lie about what he sees and what he thought? He had no reason to. No reason whatsoever. He's writing what he saw, and I don't believe the Tyler's were putting on any kind of a front. They weren't trying to show the best and then hide all the worst. This is what you would find generally across the South as people went to different parts of the South. So. We can look at this and say, well, gosh, you know, um, there's a certain amount of racism here. And there was. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and any time you have this institution, it's not going to be good. But it's certainly more complex than what uh, what you would get out of your modern popular narratives on the subject. So I found this really fascinating and uh, this particular book and, and how, how uh, Matt Griswold got into that part of it. And there's so much more in this book I could go through, but I recommend getting it. Uh, I don't remember where I bought this book, and I bought it a while ago, and uh, I've just been going through it because its it was just an interesting topic to me. But regardless, hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McLeanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.